Well, please take a seat. And it's worth turning back to Colossians chapter 1 as we begin to look at this letter together, page 1182 of the Church Bibles. And inside uh, your service sheets is uh, a little outline that looks a bit like this, uh, which will just guide you along as we look at this first little section of Colossians together. Colossians chapter 1, page 1182. Now the story of the progress of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel of God's grace in all its truth, is a wonderful and personal story. It is indeed a a thing of wonder to see how God is using this message, the message of his son, all around our world. As I said, it is a personal message, a personal story. I, I was born in Canberra, Australia, but I learnt the gospel on the north shore of Sydney from a man from Phoenix, Arizona. He himself learnt the gospel from a friend in North Carolina and who knows uh, how the chain goes back from there. The progress of the message of God's grace is a wonderful thing. And I reckon each person here who has received Christ as their Lord will have a similar story to tell, a, a story of the chain that has led to you hearing this message. Well, here as we begin our journey through this letter to the Colossians, we will see again that behind this letter is another wonderful story of the progress of this gospel. It's a story that begins with a a well-to-do businessman who lived in the town of Colossae. His name was Philemon. And being a well-to-do businessman, he often had to travel around the Mediterranean and one of his usual haunts was the town, the coastal town, thriving town of Ephesus. He was, if you like, a frequent flyer to Ephesus. Uh, But this time was different. This time as he uh, entered Ephesus, uh, a stir was in the town. A Jewish man by the name of Paul was in Ephesus and he was gathering crowds in a hall and speaking of one called Jesus. Jesus, who he claimed was not only the king of the Jews, but king of all the earth and judge of all the earth. And so Philemon, on perhaps an afternoon off, was intrigued and went to listen. And to his great surprise, he too became a believer in this message. God's grace to him in all its truth. Now at the same time that this was happening, another man from Colossae had much the same experience, Epaphras. He too travelled to Ephesus and he too heard of this gospel and he too received Christ. Epaphras returned home uh, with this gospel and he told many the word of truth in Colossae, telling them about Jesus, their king, the message that Paul had taught him. And over time, a number of Colossians came to faith in Christ Jesus and over time, uh, Epaphras and these other Christians started to meet in Philemon's house, gathering together this fledgling community of Christians to encourage one another. Now, while all this was going on, Philemon, a rich man, as I said before, who had a number of slaves, uh, had a particular slave uh, by the name of Onesimus, a dodgy slave really, uh, not very good at his job. In fact, he ran away, ran away to the big smoke, to Rome. Now, remarkably, by this time, by the time Onesimus is legging it to Rome, by God's gracious providence, Paul also is in Rome, a prisoner, under house arrest, but able to welcome visitors into his home. And this, uh, we're told in Acts was a chance for Paul to proclaim the gospel boldly and without hindrance and so he did. Visitor after visitor came to Paul's house and one of them was the wayward Onesimus who himself received Christ. 
Because of this gospel, his life was changed and he became a huge help to Paul, like a son really, we're told. Well, time passed for Paul in Rome and then one day appearing at his door was the familiar face from the Ephesus days of Epaphras with news, news from Colossae, news of many who had received Jesus Christ as their Lord, news of solid faith, of confident hope of transformed lives, news as we see there in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 1 of a holy, faithful people in Christ in this town. Can you imagine Paul's joy at hearing that news? Imprisoned as he was, the wonderful story of, of hearing that the gospel had a new chapter in a new town. This is the way I picture it. Paul seeing Epaphras, embracing his friend as this news is told to him, saying there is so much to thank God for, so much to ask. And I've got to write to them. I'm going to write to them right now. I want to assure them that they have indeed received Christ. I want to encourage them that not only have they received him, I want them to walk with him all of their life. And so he writes a letter that is before us tonight. And when he's finished, he hands it to his assistant, Tychicus, and none other than Onesimus, who heads back to Colossae. You imagine that as he heads into Philemon's house. What a reunion that would have been. Where the church is gathered, gathered to listen to this letter from the Apostle Paul. And their purpose in listening in the very first reading of that letter is exactly the same as ours. Hearing a letter from a man they've never met, they probably never did meet, but a man who by the glorious chain of God's grace, the glorious path of the message of Jesus has played a crucial role in their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's writing to them. And so as we start to listen tonight, we listen like them, anxious to hear what this apostle, this spokesman for none other than the Lord Jesus is going to say to us. And as we first start to listen, what Paul will do for us is he will tell us what he would pray for the Colossians and what, no doubt, he would pray for us. And essentially in these verses before us, he does two things in his prayer. He gives thanks and he makes petition. Firstly, he gives thanks, as you can see, starting in verse 3, and I'll read that for us. We always thank God, says Paul, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And what follows in this prayer of thanksgiving is is no mere formal thanksgiving, no sort of just arbitrary thing that, that was customary in letters of the time. This is thankfulness over realities of the deepest kind. Three things shape Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossians. He gives thanks for what has happened, for how it happened and what it means. Firstly, Paul bends the knee before the God of the Gospel and he gives thanks for what has happened to these people meeting in Philemon's house in Colossae. What's happened to them? Life has happened. Gospel created life. And in verses 4 to 5 he gives us three undeniable signs of real Gospel life. And I reckon not only does he do this to tell us what he is thankful for, but he does it to confirm for the Colossians, yes, you really are Christians. Three signs that are always authentic marks of Christian life produced by the Gospel. And three signs for us tonight to look for in ourselves. Especially if you are someone who struggles with assurance as a Christian, who who questions, am I really a Christian? What am I meant to look for? What are the signs in my life to, to show me I'm a Christian? 
And not only for the individual, but the sort of signs that we should see in a community of believers. What's the sign of a Christian church? What, what, what would that look like? Because there can be many false assurances, can't there? Many, many things that we might hold up. That will show me. That will give me the confidence. Perhaps it's when life is successful for us or prosperous, when, when we can see obvious signs that God is blessing us, that he is for us. That's when I know I'm with God. Or perhaps for a church it's numbers. When we're thriving, when we're growing, that's when we're, that's when we're a Christian church. Or perhaps we look for signs or wonders or miracles or tongues or healing, things that will tell us God is really at work here. Or perhaps it's tradition. A Christian church is known by its rituals, by its traditions. Well, no, there are three things that Paul is thankful for, three authentic signs of gospel life in a person or a church. Faith, hope and love. Firstly, he gives thanks for the faith he has heard about. You see it there in verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now we know this is central to the Christian life but I reckon it's easy to be confused about the experience of faith. We often think of faith as an intellectual matter, facts I believe about Jesus, the sort of facts that we've said in our creed tonight and it is definitely that. It is the word of truth as our passage tells us. But faith is an experience. The mind is involved but it is an experience that we should be able to recognise in our lives. It's the experience of confidence. Faith is is not just the assent to propositions about Jesus, but confidence in the person Jesus. It's the experience of trust and security in Jesus Christ. Faith lives. Faith has legs in our real life experience. As we live and speak in our world, we declare by our life, I trust him. And I reckon for a person living in a world like ours, there is no experience to match it. Let me ask you with this first sign of gospel life, uh, do you know that experience? A trust, a confidence, a security in Jesus. Let me say if you do, don't underestimate how significant that is, faith in your life. Confidence, uh, not arrogance, but confidence in a world like ours. A world uh, that seems to be growing more and more filled with angry atheists who will belittle puerile faith in Jesus, childish faith. A secular media and institutions that will wage war against such confident trust. And then there is just the experience of living in a broken world like ours with experiences that rock our faith and buffet against it. To live in a world like ours and experience faith in Jesus Christ well, only a gospel proclaimed to the heart by God's spirit can produce a life like that. It is a miracle. Give thanks for it. And then there's a second sign, again in verse 4, the sign of love. Paul has heard uh, about these Colossians, about this small community that is growing and he has heard of their love for all the saints. Now saints here really just means Christians, their love for one another. And again we lose sight of the miracle of this. Uh, When Paul talks about their love here, he's not just talking about the sort of normal friendliness or politeness. Uh, The British are very good at that. That's not a sign of gospel life. This love is what happens when you know God's love. God's grace towards you in all its truth, when that sinks in, 
When you see another person and you realise that across the pew from you that God's love for them is no less than it is for you. But they may well be different to you in age or culture or race or education or wealth. They may even be annoying. But in the end that is irrelevant. Irrelevant to the fact that just as God has so loved me, he's loved you. I can't be indifferent to you anymore. You're my brother or my sister. We're family. Let me ask you, do you know that experience? Do you see it in your life? Do you see it in the life of this church? I mean, that's the question that came to me as we start to see these signs. Uh, are, are these the marks of our church? If report uh, happened to reach Paul of Christchurch forward, uh, would he hear of our faith, of our love? And then this third sign in verse 5, our hope. The hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Hope. What a word. I reckon it's the best word ever. Or it competes with grace at least. For me, hope and grace are the two words that sort of compete for the best word ever created. We'll go with hope tonight. It is a sign of gospel life. What a hope the gospel brings to a world like ours, a hopeless world. You see, gospel hope is not like the hopes of our world, a sort of a short-lived phenomenon, like an ashes victory. (laughs) Or a a sort of a short-lived phenomenon like the the moonflower. I was reading about the moonflower this week, don't ask me why. But uh, the moonflower, it blossoms around sunset and by the morning it's gone. That's the sort of hope our world holds up and clings to. Nor is gospel hope a rare event. Let me give you another flower, the century flower. It lasts for about 15 years and just once in its life does it flower. That's the sort of hope that marks this world. That's the sort of hope that marks our nation. But our nation and our homes, ourselves, we need a hope that's not going to disappoint, that's not going to fade, that can't be snatched away from us, that's safe. Well, here's the wonder of the gospel, hope. Our only hope comes by way of a death and was born in a grave. Over 2,000 years ago, our hope was born the day that Jesus rose from the dead, born the day he ascended to heaven. And so verse 5 says, our hope is safe because he is safe in heaven. And so this hope, do you see it there, verse 5, is a spring for us. It's a resource for our faith and love, an endless resource. The more our faith grows, the more our love grows, it is because we are digging deep into this hope, drawing on it. Well, that's what's happened to the Colossians. Faith has happened, love has happened, hope has happened. And how? Well, that's the second thing Paul gives thanks for, for how it has happened It's simple really. They've heard the gospel. This hope that they have has come to them because the gospel holds it out to them. Do you see that in verse 23 of chapter 1? We'll skip ahead to one of the verses we'll look at next week. Verse 22 and 23, you'll see this, the hope that the gospel holds out, the hope that because of Jesus' body was given for you, given over to death, here is your hope. Take this in. You will come before the throne of God and be presented without blemish. You will come before the throne of God and you will be holy in his sight. You will come before his throne and you will be free from accusation. No one can accuse you. That's our hope. 
Verse 5 says this hope came to them as a message, the one that Paul had been proclaiming all around the Mediterranean. It is, as Isaiah put it in our other reading, the beautiful feet of Epaphras had taken that message and taken it to Colossae. He brought them the gospel, the God's grace in all its truth. It is the news, as again as Isaiah said, of the Lord showing his strong arm of salvation to this world. You want to see how strong his arm is? We'll have a look at the last few verses of our passage. So strong is Jesus that, verse 14, he has redeemed us, brought us back from our enslavement to our own sin. So strong is Jesus that, verse 13, he has rescued us from under death into the kingdom of his risen son. And verse 12, so strong is Jesus that he has qualified us given a share in the inheritance of God's people, a claim I have no right to but is freely mine because I am in Christ. There's my hope, my death-proof hope and the gospel, the message of the gospel holds that out to me. And so Paul gives thanks because the Colossians have heard this message and they've laid claim to it. And they'd learned it just as Epaphras had learned it from Paul before him, this chain of grace. And they'd understood it and they'd learned it because Epaphras had returned to Colossae with a message and he'd been faithful to it. Do you see that in verse 7? He hadn't messed around with it, he hadn't changed it, he hadn't polished it up a bit. He guarded it, he handed it on as the precious treasure that it was. So let me say to you, as you think about living for the Lord Jesus in this world, as you think about holding out that hope to this world, be confident in the message of the gospel. Be confident in the message you have learned. It holds out such hope to our world, to those you love, to those who live around us. Be confident in it. And pray that we here in this place together would be faithful with that message. Pray for Roger Carswell as we did earlier in in a few weeks when we have our guest service as that message is heard again, perhaps for the first time by some Pray that there will be new stories of the gospel to add that night. And pray for the church plant, the upcoming one. Pray for a new bridgehead for God's message in this city. What a thought. Imagine if, like Paul in Rome, we hear reports back of what the gospel has done, how it has progressed further in this city, as it has in Encliffe, as it has at Christ Church Central before that. Pray that we, each one of us, would not be the ones who break this wonderful chain of grace by guarding what has been given to us, this precious word of truth. Now, of course, if we did, if if we were unfaithful to this message, God will still progress his gospel without us. But don't you want to be in on this? What an encouragement it is to hear of that, you know, to to realise that someone has told you the gospel, but to see that chain go beyond you as well. You ever had that experience of hearing how the gospel has gone out from you as well? I remember the first uh, group of guys I had to lead in a youth Bible study. I learnt uh, the gospel from a man called Ken from Phoenix, Arizona. Dougal learnt the gospel from me. So did Mike and James and Nico. I led them for about five years and right near the end of our time together they uh, bought me as a leaving gift. They bought me a watch. It's sort of like a retirement, really. You get a watch in retirement. They gave me a watch. I don't think they spent a lot of money on it. They got a sort of a two-for-one deal. 
But why the watch is precious to me is it has engraved on the inside three words, faith, hope, love. It's enormous encouragement to see this gospel faithfully proclaimed, to see how it does its work. God will do his work through this message. And so Paul, in house arrest in Rome, sitting back, taking in the news of the progress of this gospel, seeing this faith and hope and love spring up. Thirdly, he is thankful not only for what has happened, not only for how it's happened, but for what it all means. Can you picture it? As he hugs his friend Epaphras and he says, you know what this means, mate, don't you? You know what this means? Of course Epaphras knew what it means. Of course Paul did, but it's fun to say it out loud and so they do. Verse 6. It means that all over this world the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying. As the gospel goes through this world, a world that God has made, but a world that has rejected its maker, a world that is broken and judged, as the gospel goes through this world, it is fruitful and multiplying. It is turning everything around, bearing fruit and multiplying. Now, they're big words. They sound familiar to you? They are foundational words. Some of the first words God ever spoke in creation, be fruitful and multiply. Now Paul quotes them here in verse 6 and then again in verse 11, very deliberately I think to take us back to those very first moments of our world. Let me read them for you. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God's original purpose for humanity, the purpose by which he was to bless us, was be fruitful and multiply. And it was always about more than making babies and culture. Here in his cell in Rome, hearing the news of the gospel's progress in Colossae and the world, Paul knows what God is doing to fulfil that purpose. God's original purpose for us of being fruitful and multiplying, his creation mandate, which we can never fulfil because we are fallen down creatures, God is doing it through the news of his son. How good is he? He is bringing new life, fruitful life, multiplying life. God's means of fulfilling his creation mandate is ultimately the proclamation and hearing of his word of grace in all its truth. That's how he brings life to this world. Thank God, says Paul, for what has happened, for how it has happened and what it means. And as his prayer continues, he moves from thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8 to petition from verse 9. Now, I love this. Paul is hearing of this amazing blessing that God has given the Colossians. He is stoked in God's abundant provision for them. And then he says this, more please, He's like the little boy in Oliver who, uh, you know, he's had his fill and he says, please, sir, I want some more. He's like uh, Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. I don't know whether you've seen the movie, but there's this part where he's given the job of looking after the library and it's a pretty pitiful library. So he starts writing letters to the government asking for funding and so they send him some funding and some books and all it prompts is more letters and more requests for funding. That's what Paul is doing here. I know you've blessed the Colossians. Now I want even more. And I reckon this is so helpful for us to see Paul's prayer here, his pattern of prayer. It's got much to teach us. You see this strange and close connection between his thanking and his asking. 
I don't reckon we do that very often. We sort of split them. They're for different seasons of our life. When all is well for me, I'm thankful then. And I ask little. I mean, it would be greedy too, wouldn't it? But remember the message. It is God's grace in all its truth. Boldly ask, says Paul. More please. And then the opposite is true. When troubles come or lack, I'm askful, yes, but I thank little. No, but not Paul in prison with a very real chance of the death sentence. For him, walls do not a prison make nor iron bars a cage. He is thankful. He knows God's purpose is to bless us. He sees it happening in Colossae and he says, Sir, I want some more. I want fruit in and out of season. More blessing, please. Fill them up. Fill them with what? Do you see it in verse 9? He wants them to have life's Lives filled with knowledge. Knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And basically what he's doing is he is asking for what he was thankful for, more of it. He wants them to know God's will. He wants them essentially to know the gospel better. To know God's gracious purpose for his world, to bring blessing, to bring peace we see in verse 20. Paul says, I've asked God to give you more and more knowledge of this gospel, more and more of it. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point in the passage, I balk a bit. After what we've seen so far, after what we've seen, that the gospel, they've got the knowledge of the gospel, they've got that, why not ask for something else, Paul? Something more exciting than knowledge. But Paul is no fool. He's not asking here for complex or abstract head knowledge. Knowledge of God's will, his grace, his truth. And it touches down at the real level of a home in Colossae with people like us. And yet it is head knowledge. Paul wants the Colossians to have wise minds because he knows that this knowledge will bring that. And so let me say, it is with no embarrassment that we as a church family are about filling our minds with the knowledge of God's will filling them to the brim. That's what our small groups are about, our lighthouse group, our kids' church, our Sunday AM, our youth small groups, you name it, it is filled with the activity of filling one another with the knowledge of God's will. Now here's why. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will is the best possible equipping for life. Such knowledge brings all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you see that in verses 10 and 11. You see what that knowledge produces? You see its purpose? It's intensely practical. Such knowledge enables you to walk in a manner worthy of your Lord and to fully please him. What a thought. You can please your heavenly father. You ever wanted to please your father? I'm privileged uh, with still being uh, my children at the age where they are desperate to please me. My two oldest have uh, started swimming lessons and most often, they go on Thursday nights, most often Liz takes them but uh, it's been about three months since I've had a go and I took them last Thursday and they were desperate to show me the progress they'd made. And so uh, my job as a parent, the way this particular place is designed, there's a sort of a viewing area above the pool and so Finn will do a little lap across the pool and he'll look up at me to see if I've noticed and uh, Jamie's a bit further behind in the lessons. Her, her progress at this stage is jumping in. <laughs> but she's desperate afterwards. Dad, did you see me jump in? 
Now let me say, uh, not for a second did I think, whoop-de-doo, Jamie, lots of people can jump in a pool. <laughs> as proud as punch. What a thought to be able to please your heavenly Father. You need to grasp how much that changes your life, that you can please him. Before you heard the word of truth, before God's grace swept you up in its hope, your mind was hostile to God. You, you couldn't care less about pleasing him. In fact, you couldn't please him. Not even in your best moment on your best day. But those who have believed the word of truth by the Spirit, who have come to faith and love and hope, you can walk this week and this life in a way that will bring your Heavenly Father great pleasure. And not just when you're doing churchy things here. You see it there in verse 10, you can please him in every way. Knowing God's will, being filled with that, transforms your life, all of it. And as we move towards a close, uh, we're going to see in the future chapters just how much it changes your life. But let me mention three at the end of this passage, three changes that this knowledge will bring. Firstly, it will cause you to do what the gospel itself does. Verse 10, it will cause you to bear fruit in every good work. The more you know of the gospel, the more you know of what God has done, it will start to cause fruit to bud everywhere in your life. No part of your life, no activity that the knowledge of the gospel can't transform, that it can't till and sow and water and harvest and fruit from. So let me ask you, Christian, are there parts of your life that are barren, fruitless, relationships, or hopeful relationships, attitudes perhaps to purity or your anger, attitudes to work or your family or your stuff, fears, frustrations that the, the knowledge of God's will, the gospel, has never entered into. This knowledge can transform how you think and speak and act in all of that. And so if there are areas of your life that are fruitless, and I suspect for all of us there are, Could it be that the knowledge of God's grace, his word and all its truth has not been let in? Never applied to that part of your life. You've never brought the relationship or your work or your family or your fears to the gospel. Well, if that is you, it is time to trust that it can bring change, real change. It's time to stop looking for change from somewhere else. And let me say as well, you may need a brother or sister to speak the gospel to you in that situation rather than just yourself. It is as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, he said, the Christ in my own heart is weak and feeble but the Christ in my brother's heart is strong and sure. Maybe that's what you need. This knowledge will cause you to bear fruit and secondly it will cause you to grow to know God. It's wonderfully circular, isn't it? The more you know of God's will, the more you'll know God. The more you know his will, the more you know his heart and that his heart is for you. I hesitated to uh, illustrate it this way but I'm going to go for it and see if I get in trouble with Liz later. But uh, this is, as I was looking at this passage, uh, this, this, is, uh, this idea of growing in knowledge of God's will causes me to know God better. This is the, the thing that came to my mind. When, when Liz and I started going out, I, I was kind of interested in maybe in asking her out at some point and I was going to get round to it in the next 12 to 18 months. <laughs> I was just working up to it. 
And then one particular night, it was a December in, uh, in Australia and uh, I was driving home from a, a, a sort of a Christmas party that uh, we'd both been at and uh, I'm driving along uh, home and there's this car sort of behind me with its lights flashing. I'm thinking, oh, there must be something wrong with my car, a tyre flat or something, so I pull over. And the next thing I know, it was one of Liz's friends and she jumps out of the car, Liz jumps out of the car and she jumps into the passenger seat of my car and she says, look, I have no idea uh, what you think of me and uh, this is taking far too long for you to tell me so I thought I'd tell you how I feel. <laughs> I think I'd like to get to know you a bit better and perhaps we could go out some time and we could do that. What do you think? Gulp. <laughs> At which point I started some line about, yeah, yeah, I was thinking that, I was going to get round to it. But let me tell you, to to know for sure that another person is for you, all of a sudden I was desperate to know her, know all about her. That's what God's will is like. The more you know of his will, the more you know he is for you, that he loves you so much that he'd send his son for you, uh, the more you will long to know him better, not just about him, but him, this God who is kind and good and for you. So well may we pray for one another that we be filled with that knowledge. And as we finish, finally this this third change that this knowledge will bring, it will bring empowerment, verse 11 and 12. What a wonderful end to this prayer. Paul prays that we may have knowledge of this hope that we've heard of, the hope in the gospel. Knowledge that, uh, as he'll say later in this letter, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Knowledge of that day. Death-proof hope, certain hope, but a hope in heaven, stored in heaven, and I'm not in heaven. What about now? Well, here's the wonderful thing. This knowledge will enable me to live this side of heaven, knowing this gracious and true gospel will strengthen me with all the power I will need for what? Not to pretend life's perfect. Not to never stumble or tire or grow disheartened or suffer loss or grieve, no. But you see it there in verse 11. You see what it will do for me this side of heaven? Empower me to be a man or a woman who in the midst of all of that endures with patient joy and thankfulness. What a miraculous creature. Only the gospel of grace can bring that change. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is an amazing prayer that Paul prays for these fledgling Christians surrounded in a world like ours. Now, what a prayer to have on our hearts for one another. Well, let's pray now.